0: Welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. I'm Thomas, and today I have the privilege of interviewing Brian Zond, the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, as well as the author of several books, including Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, Water to Wine, and A Farewell to Mars. Welcome, Brian, and thanks for taking time to be here with us today. Hello, Thomas. It's nice to be with you. Uh, super glad you uh, decided to be with us. One of the things we like to do—I'm going to put you on the spot—but if you don't have anything, that's totally fine as well. Uh, we have a segment we call "Really Bad Pastor Joke." Uh, we like to give people an opportunity to tell a bad pastor joke, but if you don't have one, that's okay.
1: Oh, you know, I don't. I, I'm not a. I'm not a joke teller. I, that's uh, all right. Did you hear about the uh, dysla- dyslexic atheist who didn't believe in a dog? <laughs>
0: Oh, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And we have not had that one yet. Uh, Well, recently, uh, you finished a sermon series called Dark Nights and New Dawns, where you talk about theological and spiritual deconstruction and reconstruction. And that's what we want to talk to you about today. Uh, But first, Brian, I feel the need to offer you an apology. Okay. (laughs) Several years ago, uh, when I was in seminary, um, and still trying really hard to cling to my own fundamentalist certitude, I came across some of your stuff. Uh, and I believe in class, and maybe even on Twitter, I referred to you as a Neo-Marcionite. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which, of course, as I learned more, uh, it, was, it was both uncalled for and untrue. Um And in the years since, I found myself agreeing with you more. But I hope uh, you will accept my apology for that.
1: All is forgiven for what people in <laughs> seminary say. You know, they're in seminary. They're,
0: you know how it goes. That's true. That's true. Um but uh yeah since I've been following you ever since I found myself agreeing with you more and more and more and I look back I'm like oh that was not not my best best time. <laughs> well even if
1: people disagree with me I'm not an, a neo or semi or partial marcionite. That's just, you know, uh marcion. So 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 people know Marcion was a 2nd century heretic who saw a problem that all the church fathers saw of finding a nice way to integrate Old Testament New Testament Uh, Marcion came up with about the worst approach. His his idea was to say that the God Yahweh of the Old Testament was a demiurge, sort of a I don't know, sort of a a lesser deity or possibly even a demon, and that the solution was for Christians to simply uh, extricate the Old Testament from the canon of Christian scripture and get rid of it. What do I say? I say that Yahweh of the Old Testament is the Abba of Jesus and it tells the massive story of how we get to Jesus. I pray from the Old Testament every day. I read devotionally from the Old Testament every day. Uh, so, so there's a ocean of difference between Marcy and I. <laughs> the only, the one thing we have in common, but this would be all of the church fathers, is that it isn't always easy to read the Old Testament and the Sermon on the Mount and know immediately how you, uh, put those two things together. And that's a project we all have to work on. But yeah. So anyway, Thomas, it's water under the bridge, man. Don't worry about <laughs> it. I'm fine. I'm cool. Well, I, I, did, I just, I just, for, I don't know who our listeners are. I just wanted them. He called him a, a Martian? What did he call him? <laughs> <So> <laughs> no, I that's, thought I would,
0: I would explain what that is. And that's wonderful. And I love that you, like you said, the, the problem he identified was not new. Um, and right. it's a problem we all have to wrestle with. His solution is, and we've seen that, uh, you probably saw it. Andy Stanley got, a, in a whole mess. Right. There's, it's been going around recently. So, um, but anyway, I, I appreciate your grace and forgiveness. there. Oh, sure. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so when, uh, my co-host Nick and I started this podcast, uh, we sort of started it as a response to the flood of Calvinist podcasts that were going on out there. Um, I don't but, get invited to a lot of those. <laughs> really? I, I find that few. hard to believe. I, mean, I, w- I wouldn't say I haven't done them, but not as many. <laughs> sure. Well, we, we knew from the beginning that we wanted to do something that was more than simply uh, deconstructing Calvinism as well as other aspects of popular Christianity. Although we knew some deconstruction would be necessary, but we wanted to provide a, a holistic reconstruction, sort of a, a positive vision for Christian discipleship. And so when I came across uh, your tweet saying that you were going to start this new sermon series, I was really intrigued. Uh, and then I listened to the whole thing twice, actually, um, and I found it just super, super well, then helpful. Then you'll know it better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, perhaps. Uh, so our listeners may or may not be familiar with you, but you have sort of your own story of deconstruction and then reconstruction, which I know you talk about at length in your book, Water to Wine. Right. Um, but can you sort of give us just a, a quick Cliff Notes version of it here? Yeah, I'll
1: try to give you a, a summary of it. I mean, water to wine is my preferred metaphor. Deconstruction always sounded a little bit too violent and destructive for me. But I eventually came to, to terms with it and thought, okay, I can also use this metaphor. But I tell my story like this. Um, I'm a product of the Jesus movement. I had a dramatic encounter with Jesus when I was in high school. And overnight, I went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. <laughs> uh, this was a long time ago. I'm, I'm 59, so I'll just take all that mystery away from people. <laughs> uh, and I was immediately, within a year, I was involved in different kinds of leadership in the Jesus movement. By the time I was 17, I was leading a, a coffee house ministry called the Catacombs, which was primarily a music venue, and we'd bring in... Keith Green, Second Chapter of Acts, Love Song, you know, Larry Norman, Randy Stonehill, those kind of people, and but that in time it began to take on really the feel of a church. You know, we were leading young people to Jesus, and and this was where they were finding the life of God. And this officially turned into Word of Life Church uh, when I was 22 in the end of 1981. Uh, so I've been officially a pastor since I was, uh, 22. I've really been doing the work of a pastor since I was about 17. So I tell wow. people, look, I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult, <laughs> which is, which is not, I don't recommend it, but it's, it's just my story. It's what happened. Sure. So, you know, that's how, that's how the, my story got started, uh, Word of Life Church here in St. Joseph, Missouri, remained small for about seven years, under a 100 people. And then for whatever reason, beginning 89, going into the 90s, the church just really took off and began to grow almost exponentially, just exceptionally. And we were kind of finding ourselves drawn into the charismatic renewal, which I describe as good until it wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, then, then at least brushed up against many of the aspects of word of faith. Uh, but this is, ta- this is taking place over many, many, many years. Uh, until sure. I was 45 years old. I'd begun to sense some, some unease about the age of 40. This would have been right around the year 2000. Uh, but I didn't know what to do with it about, so I was just kind of quiet, and I was I was reading a lot. I was reading a lot of I just quit reading all of what I had been reading in the general kind of charismatic American world, mm-hmm. and I started. I said, "Well, I'm just going to go back to roots," and I started reading church fathers, okay. philosophy, which I'd always had an interest in, and uh, literature, classic literature. Just trying to explore mm-hmm. rather thoroughly the canon of Western literature. And this went on quietly, you know, within my own private life, my own soul, until about 2004. Um, and that's when I couldn't just stay the same. And I began that year with this very dramatic, uh, you know, I don't want to really tell the whole story, but this this lengthy fast, I got down to like 130 pounds. And oh my goodness. People thought I was dying, and I thought I was <laughs> dying, and in fact I was dying, my whole first of first half of life, was dying. Sure. And I I then eventually came across a book. I prayed one day. I said, God, show me what to read. And my wife walked into the room a few moments later, having no idea what I'd prayed. Walked up to me and handed me a book and said, here, I think you should read this. And it was Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. And I read that, Uh. and it was like a door being just... You don't know, you see these videos of police when they go to break down doors? <laughs> that's that's how that came charging into my life. Okay. And it changed everything in very quick order. I, I went on this, I look back on it, this epic binge reading. I was reading <laughs> all of N.T. Wright and Stanley Hauerwas and Walter Brueggemann and a lot of Carl Barth and um, David Bentley Hart, Eugene Peterson, Rene Girard, et cetera. And it transformed me. That's um, quite a
0: cast of characters.
1: Yeah, it it really is. And and then it be you have to think you have to think of a just a kind of a stock charismatic, if you want to use the term, mega church, mm-hmm. where the pastor is suddenly binge reading, because he can't not do it, because it, he feels like he's just struck gold and he can't pull out of the ground fast enough. Bruegerman and Hauerwas and NT Wright and et cetera, et cetera. And of course that changed me, and it changed sure. my preaching. And this may come as a surprise to no one, uh, whereas there were those that celebrated this transformation that was taking place in my life and preaching and leadership. Not everybody did. And, uh. You don't we, say. We went through it. Yeah, we went through a period of time where we lost a 1,000 people. Oh, my goodness. Now, I'm in a town of 70,000, so it's not a big city. And if you lose a 1,000 members of your church, what does that mean? Yeah. It means that when you go to the grocery store, you see them. Oof. And if you do it right, you can see them in all 10 aisles. (laughs) 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 And and it was so painful. It was so hard. Uh, But we made it through. And our church is today healthy and strong and in a wonderful place. Uh, that's the story I tell in the memoir, Water to Wine, which I think people find interesting. It isn't that no one has ever gone through some sort of spiritual transition, transformation like that before, but I think it's relatively unique to do it so publicly sure. with a large church and trying to hold the whole thing together. Sure. And so uh, th- that's, that's a thumbnail sketch of... of what happened in my life? And you could call that, and many have, that I went through a period of deconstruction. Yeah. Sure, sure. I'd like to say water to wine because it's just more beautiful, but, but water to wine does fail to capture the fact that during the process there can be some very painful experiences.
0: So sure, yeah. sure. And and you did all that basically before you know Facebook and Twitter were huge. So it was. Uh, I wonder how that would have been different for you had you had Twitter and, and Facebook at the time.
1: Facebook was around. Um, okay. I have grown not to like Facebook. I um, I maintain a page. I maintain a public figure page there where I can occasionally put a little bit out there. I don't do much with it. But I don't, I don't receive any content from it. I don't have okay. a feed that I read. And I don't miss it because it just seems to be too filled with acrimony and vitriol. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was around and it, it wasn't necessarily helpful to me. <laughs> I like Twitter. I like, I like Twitter. Right.
0: I, I like you on Twitter.
1: <laughs> Twitter is where you find people you don't know and learn to like. Facebook is where you learn to hate people you know. <laughs>
0: That's a really great way to put it. Um, I mean, I don't really mean that, except I probably do. (laughs) There's there's definitely truth to that. Yeah. Um, I maintain both, and I think there's truth to that. So in your sermon, you talk about how deconstruction really is kind of a buzzword now, and there really is a lot of deconstruction happening, and I think... Or maybe we're just seeing it more, but there are a lot of people who are deconstructing um, a, a version of Christianity that they grew up with. What do you, from your perspective, you say you talk to people every day? What is catalyzing um, this major shift? You know, you raise an interesting question, and I don't know that
1: I can answer definitively. I don't think I can. I, I wonder if someone can. Uh, is it that because of the access we have to communication, we are suddenly more aware? Of people going through what we might call uh, spiritual deconstruction, or is there actually something happening in this time in which we live? I tend toward the latter. My instinct is it isn't. We're just more aware. There really is something happening here.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: think um, we have reached the breaking point. The strain, just things are the breaking point of of quasi fundamentalism in the evangelical world. Its limitations mm-hmm. are now apparent uh, for too many people. Um, so it's it's a thing. I think it was always it was always going to happen. I mean, the promises that fundamentalism makes, it can't live up to, mm-hmm. and it was it was just going to take a journey far enough into modernity that it would be exposed for the fraud that it is. So I think that's happening. And the crisis comes because people really do believe there is something precious here. There, there is mm-hmm. the pearl of great price. There is Jesus. And we don't want to lose that. And yet, much of the structure that has, uh, that has been our faith has suddenly become just untenable. And we say, I, I just, I can't live this way anymore. And so, what are we going to have to do? And that ends up in being some sort of uh, process of deconstruction. Uh, for me, I think part of what I did was, you know, obviously I stayed part of the church during this process. I mean, I was mm-hmm. a pastor. Some people would say, well, you know, yeah, you're a pastor. That's your job. So, well, I could do other things. I mean, I didn't have to stay a pastor. I didn't have to stay at this church. <laughs> I could, you know, make my way in this wide world some other way. Sure. I didn't stay out of merely, you know, uh, everybody's got to have a job. I stayed because I, I really believe in the church. And, I, and it, this wasn't something I wanted to do just on my own, my own little private quest to find a faith I could live with for the rest of my life. I wanted to take people with me. I really believed that I was going to a much, much better place. And so I didn't attempt to do it privately and alone. I did it publicly because I wanted to bring
0: people with me. But now I've talked long enough, I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, that was, uh, that was a good answer. Uh, it was, I agree with you. I think there, I think it's not just that social media helps us see it. I yeah. agree that I there is think something's a, happening. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing this massive ex-evangelical group and movement, you know, and stuff on Twitter um, in a way that I just hadn't seen before. So I agree with you there. Um, in your sermon, you talk about, and I think this was brilliant, you distinguish between Jesus and the theological house we construct around him for to live, for him to live in. Um, and I, I'd like you to unpack that a little bit here. Cause I think there's, for people who might be going through deconstruction, I think that offers a way to do ke- deconstruction without losing everything.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I encountered Jesus when I was 15 years old. And Jesus has been the one. I was talking with our leadership team about that just this morning. That I've been on this long journey. And there's been so many twists and turns and things have come and gone and things have changed. And I feel suddenly so different about so many areas uh, of theology and even politics than I did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. But Jesus has remained right there. That has never changed. Uh, I tell people I'm an incorrigible Christian. (laughs) I'm just always going to be a Christian. And for one reason, Christianity has Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe the more accurate way to say it is... Christianity is the religion, and I'm I'm unapologetic, and I don't, I'm unabashed, I'm on, un, you can't talk me out of it, I insist that Christianity is a religion. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear about this, well, no, it's a relationship. No, it's a religion. <laughs> it's what, I mean, we just sound ridiculous to, to outsiders when we say that Christianity isn't a religion. They go, well, yes, it is, and I agree. <laughs> sure. Um, but it is a religion that is that is, if somebody says, well, Jesus didn't come to start a religion. I said, fine, yeah, he, no, he, he already had a religion. He was an observant <laughs> Jew. But the, the and he was a highly religious man. I mean, there's no right, right, denying right. that. Uh, but the impact of the Logos of God, the Word of God becoming flesh, his life, his ministry, death, burial, and the resurrection, was such that it was inevitable that a religion would form around that. Sure. And it's how we pass on the faith from generation to generation. But over time, um, that house can become dilapidated. That house can be uh, falling down around us. That house can be barely habitable anymore. And so renovation has to be done. Some rooms, some, some aspects of the structure can maybe simply be remodeled. Some may simply need to be okay. This is beyond reclamation. We're going to have to bring in the wrecking ball and take down the whole western wing, and then. But but Jesus remains the constant. So I have a house that I inhabit with my faith in Jesus. But periodically that may need some renovation, and so that's what I went through. Uh, now I understand some some people can go through a faith crisis that is such. That they're 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 kind of doubting everything, you know. Mm-hmm. Is Jesus who Christians claim he is? Is he uh, the Word of God made flesh? Did he rise from the dead? I, I basically never went through that. I sure. mean, what I mean by all of those things may need some nuancing, um. But and and this is where this is where being a Christian who confesses the creeds can be a lifeline.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um. I I confess the creed because Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to make it up. <laughs> and so, whereas I'm willing to rethink much, there is a core of central Christian faith. It's long been identified. It's, it, it formed what were the earliest baptismal creeds in the church. Mm-hmm. And these would be the apostles. And then later, when we need to have more definition concerning uh the nature of the Trinity, uh the Nicene Creeds. Sure. And so I just maintain that I'm a creedal Christian, which means I'm not a heretic, by the way. <laughs> but it also is this uh well well I like I like mountaineering. Uh uh-huh. I don't do as much as I used to, but you know, I, I like that and I know that world somewhat. I have a, my youngest son is a quite accomplished mountaineer. And you'll hear, when you, when you talk about rethinking aspects of theology, you'll often be warned by nervous souls, it's a slippery slope.
2: It's a slippery
1: slope. <laughs> uh huh. To which I say, well, of course it is. So strap on your crampons, get your ice axe, clip into the fixed rope, that's the creeds, and okay. climb. Because, um, Everything's a slippery slope. The whole thing, the whole mountain of God's a slippery slope, and it doesn't all slip left. Some of it slips right. Sure, and you can you can you can fall down into a crevasse of fundamentalism too. <laughs> and um, so, so I went through a renovation of my spiritual house, and by the way, it's among the very best things I've ever done in my life. Uh-huh. I mean that that water to wine again. I'm defaulting that metaphor that I right. actually prefer. It, it, it saved Christianity for me, I think, and I know it saved Christianity for my children. I have three sure. grown sons, um, and between them we have the older two are married. The youngest one isn't married yet. The, the other two are married, and we have seven grandchildren now. Wow. And uh, they love Word of Life Church. This is the church that we pastor. That's um, amazing. We had the phenomenon when we were losing so many people, when people... Because there were, there were numerous things that, that prompted exoduses at various points. Probably most notably was my complete and utter rejection of the religious right uh-huh. and any association with it. That really... I mean, if, if, if people ask me, who did you lose? The simplest and most honest answer I can give is, I lost my Fox News Christians. Okay. Um, if... If Fox News was going to determine how—that was going to be the primary lens as a worldview and even interpreting Christian faith, then you were going to have to choose between me and Fox News. Okay. And uh, a lot of them I lost out to that. But we had this phenomenon where people that I'd done my life with, people that were my peers that were my age or maybe a little older, were leaving the church, and their adult children saying— you're crazy, Mom and Dad. We're staying. This is what's keeping us in Christianity. Right. And so I found that very encouraging. Now, the problem is those kids don't have any money, or if they do, they don't want to give
0: it. <laughs> but still, the future belongs with the young. <laughs> oh. Um, <clears throat> so I love the distinction between Jesus and the theological house, partly because of where I came from and my. I told you fundamentalist certitude where I was sort of brought up with this idea that if, if one card falls, you lose Mm. everything. And that's what we were taught, right? It's all the literal word of God. And if this, you know, if this isn't true, then none of it's true. Um, and so I, I had a lot of friends and even myself where you like, you, you, you don't question anything because you're afraid of losing everything. Uh, so to hear you talk about the difference between Jesus and the house that he lives in, um, and the well, well, differences.
1: See, go ahead. See, Thomas, that can work both ways. If, if you say it's all one thing, and I can't afford to let go of anything, I can't afford to rethink anything because I might lose it all, and you're thinking that that's how you're going to stay in the faith, look, it can go the other way too. Right. And you can lose everything. So we had this phenomenon in our city. A phenomenon, that's not the right word. This, uh, I don't know what the word is. So there, there's a, there's a pastor. I didn't really know him that well. Uh, Calvary Chapel background. So it's, you know, kind of, mm-hmm. I always describe Calvary Chapel as basically fundamentalism in blue jeans. And, <laughs> um, and he, he, uh, this is maybe three years ago now. He got up one Sunday morning. Sunday after Easter, I think it was, I think it was three, two or maybe two or three years ago, and simply announced to his church that he was an atheist. <laughs> wow! And that he was leaving the ministry and he was leaving Christianity, and that they mm. should too. Wow! That this was all a sham. I mean, can you imagine? You know, this is in a, in a fundamentalist church. The pastor getting up and doing that. Uh, he came and met with me that week following that. Uh, some people talked him into it. Thought maybe I could. Save him or something, which I couldn't. <laughs> but um, I had a long, interesting conversation with him, and he was a guy that had tied biblicism and Christianity into one inseparable knot. Yep. And when biblicism couldn't survive, then he lost everything. Yep. So, so that's what I'm saying. I mean, that's that's a desperate gamble that people are making. If they're saying, if you're saying, I can't rethink a, a literal six day. Creation in a 6,000 year old universe or all lose everything, well then you're putting people in a position where they might lose everything. Right. And I,
0: uh, and I saw that happen. That's
1: simply, and I've seen it happen many times and it doesn't need to. Yes. yes. It just doesn't need to. I mean, I've told my church for years now, I said, I don't know, I'm being very sincere, I don't know of a single peer reviewed major Scientific theory that is in the least any threat to my Christian faith, and that's honest. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I can sit around and watch you know PBS Science and Nature documentaries and not you know <laughs> right, right, become an atheist. Right. In fact, in the fact, I, fi- I I do that a lot. I watch a lot of these documentaries, and I find myself without even really thinking about it, just saying, "Oh, hallelujah, praise God." Mm -hmm. you know i just see the 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 mystery the majesty of the nature of creation but i'm not having to make these aspects of science line up with a forced fundamentalist uh reading of genesis or any other text yes that's a that's a that's a beautiful place to be
0: i i so agree because i've I have friends who have walked away completely because of that, you know, and it's – you go to college nowadays and, you know, I mean my philosophy professor and, you know, science teachers, you know, and so we've got these college students who are being told you have to choose between a literal reading of Genesis or you must believe that, you know – the falling of the walls of Jericho was literally true, even, you know, if we have evidence saying that maybe it, it's not. Right. And all of a sudden, everything comes crashing down. So I think the way that you present it gives people permission to question. And I, I, to told, doubt. I
1: told Jim, that's the name of this pastor. I told mm-hmm. Jim, I said, uh, I said, you went from being a fundamentalist christian to being a fundamentalist atheist in one fell swoop your problem is you're a fundamentalist quit uh-huh. being a fundamentalist and and have some more nuance have some breadth of thought but yes yeah
0: yeah so to to people you know i i don't know how many listeners we have who are in there but i've got friends from my background who listen to this what would you say to someone who, who might think that you know it, it's an all or nothing thing how would you give them permission to question and to doubt and still hang on well, let's let's take this approach.
1: Usually when we say all or nothing, we are basically talking about a certain way of approaching the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Bible then becomes the issue. Mm-hmm. And this is a peculiarly Protestant problem. <laughs> uh, Catholics and Orthodox don't have this problem. They have their own issues, but they sure. don't have this problem. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get to the answer to this question, but I want to set this up. Uh, we in the Protestant world Are all products of a broken home. Uh, There was a divorce in the church 500 years ago. It wasn't our fault. (laughs) I mean, you know, that's what you got to tell the kids. It wasn't your (laughs) fault. And in the divorce, and yes, the Reformation had to happen. There certainly had to be a Reformation. The medieval church was very corrupt and there needed to be a Reformation. Erasmus and everybody knew that. But what we got, along with a kind of Reformation, is we got a divorce. Mm -hmm. And and we who ended up with, there was Catholic dad, or Catholic mom and Protestant dad. We who ended up with Protestant dad in the divorce settlement, all we got was the Bible. That's all we got. Uh, Catholic mom got everything else. We got the Bible. And we made the most of the Bible. We really did. I mean, I would say over the last 500 years, the best in Bible scholarship has primarily been done by Protestant scholars. Sure. But the problem was, the Bible had to be more than it could ever be. The Bible had to become everything for us, and it simply could not live up to that. Now, here, here's, here's where I want to work on this. So, the problem is, in various forms and shades and varieties of fundamentalism within the Christian world, you almost always arrive at this, that they have made no distinction between the Bible and the Christian religion. Mm. They are synonymous. They are the same thing. And I insist they are not the same thing. Rather, Christianity is a tree, a living tree that grows up out of the soil of Scripture. Hmm. Now, indeed, you cannot separate the tree from the soil in which it is rooted, but they are not the same thing. Uh, I'm looking out my window here. In my mm-hmm. home in St. Joseph, and in our backyard, we have this enormous, I mean, tr- trust me, it's truly spectacular, um, maybe 250-year-old sycamore tree. It's just oh, wow. huge. And so I see the soil in which it's rooted. It can't live outside of that soil. You know, you're not going to uproot it and take it somewhere and it survive. Right. But my backyard and the tree are not the same thing. So, for example, for example, uh, this, this would be a famous example, I think, but it serves to make the point. The Bible does not give an unequivocal denunciation of slavery, Old or New Testament. Mm-hmm. It is, in, in the context of the scriptures, the times in which they were composed, um, slavery was just a presumed fact of life, just right. inevitable. Right. There, would, there would be a slave class. Now, most of the time, for me to defend the Bible, Most of the time that the Bible talks about slavery, it seems to be trying to mitigate any kind of suffering. It's trying to lessen it. It's trying to bring about some justice. But the Bible simply doesn't have a vision for the abolition of slavery. It's just not there, Old or New Testament. I would argue there's a a trajectory that can be derived from the the Scripture that leads us to that, but I, I just say it this way. It doesn't matter because the faith, that we call Christianity that grows up out of the soil of scripture can produce entire boughs of abolitionism.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so if you make a distinction between the textual, the textual soil that guides our conversation about the God revealed in Christ and the faith itself, then you are not placed in the position where you have to defend Every aspect of the Bible is either scientifically, historically, or ethically perfect. It's just a battle we don't have to fight. This is our soil, our text that guides our conversation. But it's not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And if you're going to be an orthodox Christian, don't we confess that Jesus is alive? <laughs> right, he's, he's alive. <laughs> Good point. So, so I think that for a person that's struggling, if that would be a a huge step, but it would be a very significant step in the right direction to make a distinction between the Bible and Christianity. They're connected, they're related, but they're not synonymous. Christianity is capable of saying more than the Bible can say.
0: Uh, that's a great way and to And still it.
1: remain faithful to the text.
0: Yes, yes. I remember back, you know, going back to the seminary days where, you know, trying to hold on to my certitude, I was going to write a, a paper defending um inerrancy, you know, all the way back to the early church right. and the fathers. And what I did when I started to go back to read the fathers, is I realized, okay, all of these guys, they they had a huge, just massive rever- reverence for the entire Bible. Right uh all god-breathed all inspired but the way that they addressed some of these things um it just it just opened my eyes they had very similar questions to what you know i thought the quote unquote liberals were saying <laughs> um yeah and and i began to realize that this modern understanding of inerrancy as much as i wanted to fight it really was modern it, and uh, yeah. our answers to it were not the the same answers uh to the early fathers and i think a lot of modern fundamentalists, if they would pick up, you know, Origin or any of these other, you know, any of these other people who wrote about Scripture. Gregory of Nyssa.
1: Athanasius,
0: yeah. Yes. Um, they would realize you, you can have total reverence for the Scriptures um, and still not have to understand them in a modern scientific...
1: Well, okay, you show me. Um, I just pick two. I'm going to pick two textual scholars. Mm-hmm. You show me a fundamentalist who takes the Old Testament more seriously than Walter Brueggemann, the New <laughs> Testament more seriously than N.T. Wright. Yes. I mean, sometimes you can just beat fundamentalists at their own game.
0: <laughs> yes. And, and
1: you say, okay, you're, you're committed to the Scriptures. Well, so am I. Uh, a fundamentalist is is a person. See, we, we all read the text through various lenses. I mean, somebody says, I want to just take the Bible as it is. And I would say, oh, I had no idea that you were fluent in Biblical Hebrew and Biblical Greek. <laughs> and that you also had perhaps at least a master's degree in ancient Near East culture and... Uh, Greco-Roman world of antiquity. Well, see, that, even if you have all of that, you you really can't take the Bible as it is. You're still approaching it at such a distance right. and you're reading through so many cultural and linguistic and theological lenses. The saving grace can be that you know you're doing it. Say, okay, I know that I'm approaching this text through these very and then what you do is you try on other lenses. Okay, this is how I read this. But how did the Catholics read it? How did the Orthodox read it? How did the Anglicans read it? How did they read, how did the Church Fathers read this? How did Karl Barth read this? Mm -hmm. A fundamentalist is a person reading the Bible through Coke bottle thick lenses (laughs) and thinks they have perfect vision and aren't wearing glasses. Um, and so they'll talk naively. I'm being a little bit harsh here. I want to be more tender toward these that are caught up in this. But, they, they talk about the perspicuity of scripture,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which, you know, that is that you can just take it at face value. Um, I, it's hard for me to believe that those kind of words would be said by people who actually spend a lot of time reading and studying the Bible. <laughs> the Bible is a difficult book. I have been reading it. I've prepared, I can tell you, the exact number, 3,369 sermons from the Bible, <laughs> I know I know the text very well. I, it's I just live in this book, and it's not an easy book. It's not an easy book to understand or to interpret. It's certainly not something you can do by yourself. It takes the whole church to do it. Um, and so, um, fundamentalists seem to lack any self-awareness of how impossible the task they have set for themselves to do it—that is, to on their own just open up a King James Bible. And and think that that their particular interpretation of that means that that is the quote word of God.
0: Yes, uh, and having come from that background, I can. I, I, I mean, I used to have all of the answers. <laughs> right, right. Um, and and I, I mean, I looking back on on my youth, and my pride. You know, I would I would be able to offer an answer to everybody, and then I get to seminary and I leave. With, with more questions than when I began. Uh, but I think like you, I, I had Jesus in a brand new way, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, I wouldn't take the certitude back if somebody offered it to me. Right. Certitude's uh, a drug. It's a narcotic.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's it's addictive. It's, there's a pleasant feeling that comes from it, but it's it's a falsity. I mean, it's, it's like a drug. It's artificial. It's not real life. And I think to push the metaphor a little further, you, there's the danger of overdosing on it and um, yeah. doing some real damage to yourself.
0: Yeah. So in your experience, people who are going through deconstruction, what are the most common triggers for them? What are the things that are that are falling out from under people that are causing them to start to, to doubt and to question most commonly? Um.
1: I think it, I think a lot of it has to, this could be just the people that engage with me. Mm -hmm. But a a common theme seems to be the problems of violence. Mm -hmm. Um, violence is very prominent in the Bible. And I suspect it's because it's one of the primary problems the Bible is trying to grapple with and address. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't it doesn't hide it, and it's not. It's not restricted to the Old Testament. It's a bit more garish, at times in the Old Testament. Um, but the Book of Revelation, when read in a certain way, can be even more so, garishly violent. Sure. And living now in a time where, where violence is now through technology so exponentially dangerous the idea of having some sort of romantic notion toward violence and the idea that violence can be divinely sanctioned I think alarms people mm-hmm. or and this has ha- this has happened to people I know I remember I'll tell I'll tell a very anecdotal pastoral story but I, I know of more than one person that this has happened to. There's was a young woman in our church. She was in college and she went on some sort of trip. I don't remember the nature of the trip to Europe. And during the course of this, she visited Auschwitz. And while she was at Auschwitz, she suddenly was hurled into a crisis of faith. I can imagine. As she's walking around, and it's a little bit, it wasn't just, you know, how can a good God allow this to happen? That may have been some of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But she thought, do I have to believe that all of these Jews who met with such a horrible end to their life through this systematic evil, mm-hmm. then went from Hitler's ovens into God's own oven, only to be tortured forever. And this, you know, and I can remember her coming to me. And I was I was very happy to be able to talk her off the ledge yeah. and offer her something better. And, and I did her wedding not too long ago. Oh, wow. And on the day of her wedding, right before the ceremony, she came up to me and told me how, how that conversation had saved Christianity for her. So it, I think it's things like that. That would be related to violence. Um it's it's really what I'm not by the way, I'm not trying to <laughs> plug sinners in the hands of God. It just came up in my thinking now. Mm-hmm. But that book, even though I don't structure it, I don't necessarily tell people this is what I'm doing, really what I'm doing is, is I'm I'm raising the question, though you can depict God as angry angry, violent, and retributive, is it true? is this the nature of God whom Jesus called Abba? Is God angry, violent, and retributive? And there may be an instinct in people to say, no, I don't think so, but what about? You get the what about. Mm -hmm. What about Old Testament violence? What about the wrath of God? What about the violence of the cross? Mm -hmm. What about hell? What about the book of Revelation? And so those are... I suppose I wrote that book for the person who is struggling with these things, who has a kind of intuition mm-hmm. that God is not inherently God is not ontologically angry, violent, and retributive, and yet they don't want to simply just throw out the Bible. yeah so how do they continue to regard the Bible as a canonical text for their faith and yet deal with these issues? And so that's who I wrote that book for uh, in my experience, I think there's other things I mean some are seeing. Um, the capitulation of evangelical Christianity to certain political agendas, mm-hmm. where we're seeing that much of evangelical Christianity is turning into little more than the religious wing of the Republican Party. And the problem with um, that is you have the political tail wagging the Christian dog. Mm-hmm. That if you say, if you say, it, it's both Christian right and Christian left, but it's very pronounced with the right right now. Yep. Uh, if you say the Christian right, well, the problem is, is Christian gets reduced to an adjective to the all important noun of being <laughs> a certain kind of conservative Republican. That is, that is creating crisis for people, mm-hmm. uh, along with these issues that would be related to the nature of God. Does God command genocide? Did God kill Jesus? Uh, does God authorize that we, uh, practice what today would be called war crimes? Uh, does God operate an eternal torture chamber? Things like that.
0: Yes. And so I know you didn't do the the sermon, um, but the, the Jesus-centered Bible, mm-hmm. and I know you've, you've tweeted a lot about that, but in just a couple of minutes, explain from your perspective why a, a Jesus-centric reading of Scripture is right and necessary and the kind of God that that produces, or well, reveals is a better word.
1: Well, first of all, when we say the Word of God... A Christian properly formed theologically and in uh, the best practices of Christianity should think, yes, amen, Jesus Christ, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the logos, the logic of God. Mm -hmm. He was with God, he was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... The Bible is the Word of God. I don't have a problem saying that. That kind of language is found within Scripture. Mm-hmm. But it's the Word of God in a penultimate sense.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: it's, it is ultimately pointing us to Jesus, who is the ultimate Word of God. Uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is divine. Uh, the Bible is not a member of the Trinity. The Bible is not <laughs> deity. <laughs> um, that would be much closer to the way Muslims view the Quran. Uh, uh-huh. But I want to be careful. I don't, I don't hold forth as being competent of really saying what Islam believes. Sure. But if, I think my understanding is that they would be much closer to regarding the Quran as divine than Christians, Orthodox Christians, small O Orthodox Christians, would yeah. think about the Bible. Uh, the Bible is very much related to Jesus in the same way that John the Baptist was related. By that I mean, um, in in John's poetic prologue, I'm going to open up a Bible here. Believe it or not, I've got Bibles all around me. I'm just surrounded by Bibles. See? <laughs> I have not. <laughs> okay, so I'm opening up a Bible here from John 1. Uh-huh. And you have this this poetic prologue to John's Gospel. We know how it goes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. And in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Because that's all talking about Jesus. We're going to learn that in a few verses. And the, and the Word, the Logos, the logic of God became flesh.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Merry Christmas. And, and <laughs> dwelt among us. But, but in between that you have this parenthetical statement. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. I don't think I would be saying anything wrong if I said this. And there was a book sent from God whose Mm. name was the Bible. (laughs) It came as a witness. To bear witness about the light that all might believe through Jesus. It was not the light, but it came to bear witness about the light. Wow. So the Bible doesn't point it to itself. The Bible doesn't call us to believe the Bible. The Bible calls us to believe in God. And specifically to believe in God as revealed in Christ. So, um... The Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible, right? It's Father, (laughs) Son, and Holy Spirit. And what the Bible does... See, people ask me, do you believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God? I say, I believe in the inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect Word of God, and His name is Jesus. (laughs) To which the Bible is the great inspired witness that points us to Jesus. What the Bible does infallibly, what the Bible does inerrantly, is point us to Jesus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I think that's a very healthy way. In fact, I, I don't want to say healthy. I think, I think that's a very Christian way to approach the Bible. Because after all, we who belong to this religion that formed around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ call ourselves Christians, Christians, not Biblians. Yes. Right. But Christians. Yes. So, I mean, I'm going to be a little picky here, but when I, when I see churches that call themselves, you know, such Bible Church, I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know about that. Um, and, but I say this as one who I don't think you're going to meet. I mean, any, any of our listeners that might really feel alarmed by this and feel like I'm demeaning the Bible I I will challenge them and say I really seriously doubt that you take the Bible any more seriously than I do. I mean the hours and the time that I spend, you know, wrestling with the text and studying it and seeking to understand what its message is. I don't think I have a low view
0: of scripture. I do think I have a high view of Christ. Yes. Yes. And for me because I I mean coming from that uh, very biblicist And, and through seminary, and and even in seminary, a part of my, one of my goals in seminary, I didn't know it was going to be a goal, was to try to keep that foundation. And yet, the more I studied the Bible, and specifically the more I studied Jesus, the more I began to realize that a Jesus-centric reading of scripture really is the- Oh yeah, that's what we were talking about. (laughs)
1: That's right. Well, um, okay, so let's, let's, let's do this. Uh, so let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, you know, it's vast. It's it's what about three times the size of three or four times the size of the New Testament. It's big, mm-hmm. and it's at times difficult. It's times it's odd. Um, I was speaking to a group of teenagers, which is terrifying <laughs> for me, by the way, just terrifying. <laughs> I can speak to seminarians; that's fine, but not the teenagers. But anyway. Um, I opened, I I was given an assignment. I was to speak on, what's the deal with the Bible? (laughs) And I just thought, okay, I'm not going to hide anything. And I started in Exodus 21. This Uh. this is the chapter that follows the chapter that has the Ten Commandments. Exodus 21, I'm just quoting this. I think I'm getting pretty close. I think it's verses 21, 22. It says, and when a slave owner, you know, already we're we're in trouble. (laughs) And when a slave owner strikes a slave, male or female, and the slave dies immediately, there shall be a punishment. But if the slave survives a day or two, there shall be no punishment, for the slave is the slave owner's property. (laughs) That was my (laughs) opening text. (laughs) And I said, uh, and I'm not in package, make sure you understand here, it's saying that if a Hebrew slave owner beats a slave to death, Just, you know, beats them to death right there on the spot and they die. Well, you know, that's not cool. There's going to be some kind of punishment. uh, Maybe a fine, but not, it isn't specified. Mm -hmm. But the text also says, but if the slave owner beats a slave and two days later they die, well, you know, after all, the slave is the slave owner's property. That's, you know, things happen. So I said, that's what this text says. Now, how many of you... Disagree with that? <laughs> Raise your hand, and you know uh, they, they, the hands started going up, kind of sheepishly. Sure, I, sh- I say sheepishly. I remember uh, the African American kids in our youth group; they their hands went boom, right up. You know, and they're like, "No, I disagree with that." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I said, "Good, you should." Uh, so, so we have those kinds of passages, right? Right. That are not easy to just reconcile with the Sermon on the Mount. So we ask this first question, what is, what, what is the Old Testament? The answer is it's the Hebrew Bible. That's mm-hmm. what it is, the Jewish Bible. Well, why is the Jewish Bible appended in mass to the beginning of the Christian canonical text? Hmm. Well, the answer is it is this enormous prequel that yes. tells us how we get to Jesus. Yes. That Jesus is the culmination Of all the story that the Old Testament is telling, uh, beginning somewhat with creation, but really beginning in earnest with Abraham. And to really appreciate who Jesus is, we need this enormous backstory. Mm -hmm. But what that means is, as a Christian, I have a sponsor into the Hebrew Bible that we call the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. and his name is Jesus. And so... I, I read the Old Testament with Jesus, not separate from Jesus, not opposed to Jesus, not against Jesus, but with Jesus. Jesus is my sponsor and my chaperone and my guide and my interpreter in the Old Testament. I don't run off into the Old Testament unsupervised. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly would never do this. I certainly don't go into the Old Testament to find verses that I can argue with Jesus about. (laughs) So I don't like it when Jesus says that we should not resist the evil man, that we should love our enemies, that we should turn the other cheek. And I go, yeah, but I like it when Joshua's killing all those people. That's what I, no, you can't use Joshua to save yourself from Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus is Lord. Yes. And he's Lord of all things, including the scriptures. Yes. And the Bible does not stand above the story it tells. The Bible itself is immersed in the journey, in the quest to discover the true and living Word of God. Um, how do I understand the Old Testament? I understand the Old Testament as the inspired telling of Israel's journey of discovery, coming to know the living God. But along the way, assumptions are made that were inevitable. But what we do is we stay on the journey because it will bring us to Jesus. Right. And then once we come to Jesus, everything is subordinate to Christ. Everything, right. Moses, Joshua, David, everyone is subordinate to Christ.
2: Right. That
1: holds the Bible together. Jesus becomes the linchpin, the focal point, uh, but that's not a flat reading of Scripture. You can't use some verse of Moses or David or Joshua or Elijah
0: to argue with Jesus. Right. That's That sounds like a very Christian thing to say, right? <laughs> it really does. And when you start reading the early fathers, you realize it's a very orthodox thing to mm-hmm. say. Um when I first came across the concept of accommodation, it just I I'm working on a project now to help people understand that accommodation is orthodox. Yes. Um and it help it it just does so much to help make sense of the Old Testament while still letting Jesus be Jesus and Lord of all and, and to hold it all together um, in a way that is both Reverent of the inspiration of Scripture, as well as Christian in terms of we, like we said in the beginning, Marcion's observation was not wrong. Right. It was his conclusion. Yes. It was his his solution, which was just untenable. We said, nope, that's not a route we can take. Correct. And he wasn't the only one to make that observation, um, either then, and you're not the only one now, and I'm, yeah. I'm so thankful for, you know, listening to people like you and Bruxy Cavey and Greg Boyd yeah. and, you know, now Andy Stanley, and, you know, uh, lots of people are starting to get this, um, myself included. <laughs> um, so, uh, I really appreciate your, See, your tenacity. But, but
1: this, and this is what I mean, Thomas, when I say this is a peculiarly, that's a hard word to say, it's a particularly protestant problem yes uh if if i stand in a catholic or orthodox church and say we should privilege jesus christ over the bible nobody's even going to hear me say that they don't yeah i mean (laughs) it would be like but in many especially a fundamentalist church or what (laughs) right because they want to conflate jesus and the bible as the same thing and they are not
0: yes yes and so that delineation between Jesus and the theological house we construct for him, I really think is is something for people who are going through doubts and crises of faith, may be just the analogy they need to help them hold yeah. on to the essentials. Um, so I was I was so pleased to, to hear that. And we'll definitely link that sermon series in the notes to the show. Um, Brian, I want to be respectful of your time, but you have a conference coming up that is going to deal with some of no, this. Oh, yeah, we do. Tell um, us about it.
1: Well, I just, I, I wrote that book, Water to Wine, and I started hearing from so many people, and uh, basically every day, and then a lot of people would want to come see me, and I would say, well, yeah, come see, you know, we'd have to work it out, but I would, I would always say yes, I wouldn't say no, mm-hmm. we, we just have to, you know, actually make it happen. And then I thought, well, since all these people are coming in to see me all the time, what if we had a a gathering where they could all come at once. I could bring some of my other friends that have been on this journey with me, and we could all spend two or three days together and talk about these things. And plus, there's always the hope then that they will make friendships with fellow journeyers. So that's what we're doing. We're going to call it the Watered Wine Gathering. It's going to happen the end of June, uh, June 28, 29, 30. It'll start on Thursday night and go through, uh, be over by noon on Saturday, so... Thursday evening, all day evening, Friday, and then over by noon on Saturday. And I've invited a bunch of my friends to come. Some of them you'll know. Uh, some, I'm sure some of the listeners probably know Jonathan Martin, good friend of mine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brad Jerzak, Mm -hmm. who, who his journey led him to, into Orthodoxy. Yeah. Eastern Orthodoxy. And, uh, one of my very closest friends and a bunch of other people are coming. And, uh, it's June 28, 29, 30. You have to register. You can do that, you go to watertowinegathering.com. You know, just water Google to- Zahn and water to wine, although you might get my book <laughs> that way, but, uh, you have to say water to wine gathering, because I'm pretty sure if you go to water to wine, you'll get like a, a wine <laughs> store or something, but Good. water to wine gathering, and you can register, and, and, uh, I think every session's gonna have Q&A, so it's gonna, we're trying to make it as interactive as possible just got out of like a
0: 3 hour meeting working on that today and we're uh, really excited about it so that's coming up pretty quick that sounds really great i'm going to see i'm going to check my schedule <laughs> um, i'm not that far away from st louis where um, are you i did not even know where by the way i'm in st joseph that's the kansas city area oh that's
1: right I, I and for know, people I that know. want to know we are we are nah less than 45 minutes from the airport in kansas city so
0: you land at kci I mean, I drive 45 minutes you're you're here I should know that. I went to UMKC for undergrad.
1: Okay, yeah.
0: Um, but yeah, I live did, in you? Uh, did,
1: did you, did you uh, know Clancy Martin there? Philosophy professor at UMKC?
0: Gosh, that name sounds familiar. I may have. He's one of my good friends. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember. But my uh, my philosophy professor was uh, a, a, a fundamentalist atheist. <laughs> um Really tried to talk people out of belief. Well, uh, so when I first him. met Clancy, he was an atheist. He's not an atheist right? now, but yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll link that uh, water to wine gathering, um, in the notes to the show as well. Uh, I, I want to, I could talk with you for hours, I feel like, but I want to be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk with us a little bit. You're welcome and thank you, Thomas. All right. Well, you have been listening to the Synergist podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence. We'll see you next time.